Well, we are continuing our series on Joseph, but to start out this morning, I'm going to talk about this man. Not exactly, well, I'll just reserve that. Abraham Abdelham is his name. Anybody heard of that name before? It's probably a good thing that you haven't, and there's probably a good reason you haven't as well, but he was a busboy there in Brooklyn, in New York, but he decided, I'm not making enough money as a busboy, so he thought, I have some better things that I could do, and it was on a particular day that he purchased this magazine. It was the Forbes edition, 2012, where it was talking about the top 400 moneymakers in America, and what they did, what their education was, what they were worth, and where they lived, and some of those types of details. And he was thumbing his way through this magazine, and he got this idea. In fact, he was frustrated at some of the people in that magazine. He thought, they're not spending their money as they should. And so he thought he could help them. And so he uh, came up with this plan to swindle, if you will, to take through identity theft money from individuals in that magazine. And you may say, well, how did he do that? Well, he started out with public information about these individuals, things that, was pu- that were published there in that magazine. And then he started to put together other details that he could find on the web. He went to the, to the Brooklyn Library and got more details. And so then he would call up where they had funds, their bank, and he would pose as if he was uh, their financial advisor wanting to make some transfers and so on. I'm calling in behalf of. And he did this for people like... Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and Oprah Winfrey, Ted Turner, Warren Buffett, uh, George Soros, to name a few. But in total, 200 people he swindled this way. And he'd get on the phone hundreds and hundreds of times just trying to get one more detail. Well, I don't have that information in front of me just now. I'm in the car, whatever he would come up with. Can you at least tell me the balance? Because otherwise, I'm going to get in big trouble. We have this big transaction coming up. Da-da-da-da-da. You can kind of fill in the the gaps. All right, here's the balance. Then he would call again. He'd get another operator. He'd go in again. And now he'd have another piece of information of, well, I know that there's a balance. I just checked it earlier this morning. But can you at least tell me? And, And by doing this over and over and over and over again, he pieced together their identity, their personal information. And when he was finally arrested... There was this Forbes magazine, quite tattered, and in the pages, in the margins of each page were their personal addresses, their phone numbers, social security numbers, bank account numbers, and they calculated that through these fraudulent transactions to bank accounts that he would set up, he was able to funnel $80 million away from these individuals. I said it was 2012. It was actually 2002. Forgive me. They've since interviewed him in prison, and the questions are asked of him. So when you stole, he says, no, 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 I don't like that word stole. If you say that word again, I'm going to end this interview. And he used to call it something different. He says, I have appropriated people's money to more admirable uses. (laughs) And in this interview, you could tell that each one of these individuals he had a problem with, how they made their their, their money or their movies or spent their money or all the rest. And so he was the the modern-day Robin Hood, if you will. Steal from the rich, excuse me, appropriate from the rich to do community service, he actually says in one place. 
I guess you could say Abraham Abdallah has a seared conscience. Our title this morning is Activating a Seared Conscience. And maybe first we should simply ask the question, what is a seared conscience? Well, we find this in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times... Some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Does that give you a visual picture? Has anybody seared cattle? Or you take out a hot brand, red hot, forever they will now be marked, if you will. And here in the book of Timothy, we have this visual picture of the fact that our conscience can be seared as with a hot iron. Earlier in this same book, chapter 1, verse 5, now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. We can sear our conscience, but there is also the opposite of this. There is a good conscience, one that works When we feel uneasy about something, our conscience is activated, right? By a pure heart, by a sincere faith, a desire to honor God. And so sometimes we say that still, small voice. And what do we know that voice to be? This comes from the story of the woman caught in adultery. And they dragged her to Jesus. And and Jesus said, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her First, And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convinced by their conscience, went out one by one. This conviction, this conscience is really another way of describing the work of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Romans 9.1, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. It's really the Holy Spirit that is bearing with us, that is weighing down on our conscience and saying, I wouldn't do that if I were you. That's not a good idea. Stay away from there. Don't go there. To respond to convictions is to allow God's word to impact how I live my life, how I relate to people. I just read this morning, God's word said this, and now the Holy Spirit is activating my conscience and saying, remember what you read this morning. Don't do that. Don't go there. Not a good idea. So activating a seared conscience. How does God activate a seared conscience? Is it possible to activate a seared conscience? How does God speak to those numb to the Holy Spirit? Sometimes we get into this a little further and we're not going there necessarily today, but we'll call it the impardonable sin because the Holy Spirit is impressing and you're not hearing anymore. It's not that you're outside and you're too far gone. It's the fact that as much as God is pleading with you through the power of the Holy Spirit, you have so become accustomed to tuning that voice out. Sometimes you see it in old married couples. The wife is barking out orders. You better take out this dress if you don't be bumped, you don't leave bump bump. He's just doing his thing. Grandpa, you, you better listen to Grandma. Uh, did she say something? I don't pay much mind to her. How can God communicate with us if we have a seared 
conscience? How can God activate a seared conscience? As you recall, we've been looking at the story of Joseph and all that has taken place in his life and how he consistently trusts God and how over and over in scripture it says, God was with Joseph and he's trusting in him throughout all of the the trying times. And just last week we saw finally how Joseph went from the prison to the palace. But now the, the camera shifts, if you will, as we turn our Bibles over to Genesis chapter 42 as we leave Egypt and focus back on his father and his brothers. What about those brothers? The ones that we've heard a little bit about, but nothing is really complimentary. In fact, we could say those brothers are quite evil, wicked. I mean, after all, how many of you have sold a sibling Oh, you're not going to raise your hand, are you? I mean, this is pretty low. And you could assume that God has written them off and said they're too far gone. Their conscience is seared. There's no way, there's no hope for them. I've tried, it's too late. But here the camera again moves from Egypt to Canaan where the brothers are. And if we back up in 41 just a little bit, we find that the seven years of famine began to come. So Joseph was 30 years old when he was promoted. We have the seven years of plenty. He's already stored up all the the supplies in preparation. And now we're at the beginning of the seven years of famine. And if you know, like any good famine, you think, oh, well, this will pass. This will pass. We can get through this. We have some provisions. We stocked up just a bit. But as time goes on, people become more and more desperate, don't they? And so in chapter 41, verse 56, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because famine was severe in all the lands. And so here, our series on God's sovereignty continues, his provision, his faithfulness. And in today's piece, we say, see how God is sovereign and faithful and cares about and longs for not just Joseph, not just Jacob. He's longing for the restoration of those wicked brothers. We're only going to look at a small piece with the brothers this morning, but I believe it's a significant piece. And so now we're in in Genesis chapter 42, verse 1. And we read there, when Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt... Jacob said to his sons, why do you look at one another? Seems like kind of an odd statement to make. He said, indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to the place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. Still kind of a grumpy response. Why are you looking at one another? Let's stop and pause there just for a minute. In the mind of these brothers, they have written off Joseph, the one that they didn't like. And they sold him, and he was on a caravan headed for Egypt. They may have had second thoughts. They may have had some regrets. They may have said, yeah, that maybe wasn't such a good idea. But you know, at the end of the day, I don't want to think about it. I don't like to go there. I don't like my mind to wander there. And so let's just not even, let's not even think about Egypt. And so you would think it would be common sense. We're starving. There's food over in Egypt. Why are you still looking at each other? Well, because Egypt is Joseph. Joseph is Egypt. We don't want to go. But finally, the situation gets desperate enough. Buy for us so we may live and not die. Okay, okay. So verse 3, Joseph's ten brothers 
went down to buy grain in Egypt. What do you think that trip was like? Those 10 brothers, day after day after day, mile after mile after mile. You've been on a hiking trail. You know how it goes. Things come up. You talk about things. It's a relaxed setting. What do you suppose they talked about? Do you suppose Joseph came up? Do you suppose they didn't necessarily want to talk about Joseph? Were they still pushing that idea out of their mind? Well, they were trying anyway. But as they get closer and closer and closer, they're wondering, what are we going to see in Egypt? Who are we going to see in Egypt? Is Joseph still alive? You do the math, we're looking at 20 years have gone by. Life can be hard on a slave building pyramids. He, he could be done for by now. But what if he's not? And maybe they're making their way into town. And they see slaves active in their labor, sweating in the hot sun, under heavy stones, or out in the field, or whatever it might be. And they're trying not to look, but they're looking. Is that Joseph over there? Is he over here? Quit looking for him. You don't want to find him. I don't want to see what he looks like. There was never a Joseph. Forget about it. Or was there? Verse 4, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers. For he said, lest some calamity befall him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed for the famine was in the land of Canaan. I wonder if Jacob had thought, you know, I know the story they told me about Joseph, but I still wonder where were the other ten. Maybe it happened on the way. Maybe they found them, you know, it's just as they described. But maybe there was some foul play involved. I don't know. But maybe the father doesn't fully trust the other ten. And now Benjamin, he's between 20 and 30 years old. He's a grown man, but he still says, you're staying here. I don't necessarily want you with them. Verse 6, now Joseph was governor over the land. Position of power. And it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Now you might think, with all these people coming through, is it truly Joseph who's handing out the provisions for all of these thousands of people? I doubt it. But I imagine if you have a whole stockpile of food, the enemies out there that are hungry are going to want to invade and take what you have. And so security is a big deal. Who you sell to is a big deal. And somebody could easily come in and find the weak spot and come back and say, here's what we're going to do. We'll have all that we want. We can sell the provisions and we will become rich. So it only would make sense that Joseph says, you know, I'm going to all the foreigners that come through, send them to me. Not to mention the fact there's some other foreigners. I'm kind of curious if I might see them or not. And so lo and behold, here come. Ten Hebrews, they look a little different. Bearded. Shepherds, if you will. And they come down and they bow down their faces with their faces to the ground. Does that bring back any memories of any past anything? Right there, in a moment, we have a fulfillment of prophecy, don't we? And he recognizes it. He says, whoa. This is incredible. In fact, keep your finger there, but turn back just a few pages to uh, Genesis 37, verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. 
So he said to them, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and stood, also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaf stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to them, shall you indeed reign over us? Uh-huh. Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? And so they hated him even more for the dreams and for his words. 20 years later, who's eating their words? Verse 7, back to chapter 42 in our story. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. That's a significant piece. He recognized them. He recognized the situation. And I imagine he's combing over every feature. He's naming them off one by one. There's Reuben. There's Simeon. He's going down bit by bit. Boy, he's changed a little bit. He's lost his hair. But that's them. I'm sure of it. It's them. What are they like? Are they the same? Would they do it all over again? Have they changed? Maybe children have softened them over the years. I don't know, but he's wondering all of these thoughts. He's having to think quick on his feet. And so he acted as a stranger to them, spoke roughly to them. And then he said to them, where do you come from? Do you think he wants to know some answers? He's dying to ask certain questions. And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Verse 8, so Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. He's cleanly shaven. He probably has a big headdress on. He might even have some of that football type makeup over his eyes. I don't know, but they don't recognize him. They don't expect their brother in this position of power. And never mind the fact that their heads are just buried in the ground. On top of that, we know he's speaking to a translator. And so they don't suspect. Verse nine, then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them and said to them, you are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. Now stop for a minute. We know this story so well. We think this is the only option for Joseph. This is what he has to do. This is what the story has to say. But wouldn't it have been so tempting at that moment to say, aha, I know who you are. I had this dream. I'm in power now. Just put your face in that dirt a little longer. We're going to have a chat. Who's in power now? Payback time. You want to try rotting in prison for a while? That can be arranged. You want to never see dad again? I can arrange that too. Perhaps could have been tempting. That's not what he does. That's not the man Joseph is. You are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. There are vulnerable points. Verse 10, and they said to him, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. But he said to them, no, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, your servants are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today. And one is no more. Dad's still alive. At least he was when they left. Benjamin's still alive. They haven't done the same thing to Benjamin that they did to me. Praise the Lord. But then that last line, and one is no more. That's how they like to view it. Out of sight, out of mind. He's just no more. What happened to your other brother? I didn't have another brother. He's no more. 
We don't think about them. We don't go there. We don't talk about them. I don't like the thoughts it brings back. So we just say it doesn't exist. Done. But Joseph said to them, it is as I spoke to you saying, you are spies. In this manner, you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not leave this place. And yet, unless your youngest brother comes here, send one of you and let him bring your brother. And you shall be kept in prison that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies for the third time. So we put them all together in prison three days. I would think prison would be an interesting place to contemplate life a little bit. Here we are. I knew coming to Egypt wasn't a good idea. I had bad vibes about Egypt. They had accused us of being spies. Now we're here. And they're thinking about it. They're musing about it. Maybe they're arguing about it. I don't know. But they're contemplating for three whole days. Then Joseph changed his mind. On the third day, verse 18, do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house. But you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. I imagine as quickly as possible. Then they said to one another, verse 21, we are truly what? Guilty concerning our brother. For we saw the anguish of his soul, and when he pleaded with us, we wouldn't hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. The passage will tell us later, they're speaking to each other in Hebrew. They don't think Joseph is understanding, but he hears it all. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against this boy? And you would not listen. Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. The situation now has come to the place where they can't help but think about Joseph. We're here. We're in this situation because of what we did to Joseph. It was your idea. You wouldn't listen to me. How come? And if we have this confession. We are truly guilty concerning our brother. The first step in activating a seared conscience is taking responsibility for one's own personal guilt. But we don't like to do that. Pride doesn't permit us to do that. We just like to say, out of sight, out of mind, he's dead to me. I don't go there. We don't talk about it. I don't have a brother. But here we have an admonition. We are truly guilty. Here the brothers didn't blame their father for being passive. They didn't blame their brother Joseph for being proud or arrogant or favored. They didn't try and diminish the wrong by saying they were too young. We were too immature. We didn't know what we were doing. They used the right pronoun. We are responsible. We saw the anguish. We would not hear. We are truly guilty. Friends, when you, you haven't fully dealt with your transgression or your sin or your guilt, often the pain you have caused comes back around to you like a boomerang. And I think sometimes God allows that boomerang to come back so we can see what it feels like to try to resurrect, if you will, our seared conscience in this area. I didn't do anything wrong. What I did was justifiable. But now the pain you have inflicted becomes your pain. The heartache you have caused now becomes your heartache. The distress of these brothers is over two decades old, but now they are feeling 
the distress. One commentator said this is the first time in the entire book of Genesis that we have an acknowledgement of sin. I said, how can that be possible? Now, I didn't have time to comb over the book of Genesis over and over and over, and we have some times that people are offering sacrifices and various things and actions that we get a similar picture. But here, this is the first time on somebody's lips they're saying, we are guilty, we did wrong, we have sinned. Friends, the blame game never brings healing. But it's shocking to me, this is the first time that we have somebody saying, I messed up. I mean, look through the book. You have lies, you have drunkenness, you have infidelity, you have rape and murder and incest, selling a brother as a slave, cover up more lies, all before we get to this point. But nobody on their own lips is saying I was wrong. But finally, we have an acknowledgement of guilt, an acknowledgement of sin. We were wrong, we messed up, we made a poor choice. And the reality is the blame game never brings healing. It never brings restoration. But there's something so powerful about owning one's guilt. About not saying, it's this guy. But to say, no, it's me. I messed up. David in Psalm 32, after the sin of Bathsheba and the murderous plot to kill her husband Uriah, he says this, when I kept silent, I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm just going to hope this goes away. Pretend it never happened. He's no more. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groanings all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. He was parched. But then verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Forgiveness is powerful. In fact, in the weeks to come, we'll see just how powerful. But we have even here in this story an example of how powerful confession is in verse 23. But they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke through an interpreter. Verse 24, and he turned himself away from them, and what? He wept. He was cut to the heart by their admonition that they were wrong. And he wept for the first time in 20 years. And finally they admit to their wrong. And he couldn't contain himself. Some suggest these are tears of relief. Some say they're tears of joy. Some say they're tears of pain. They're tears, they're a heartfelt, they're probably a mixture of all these things put together. But it's a, a justification, if you will, in part of the wrongs that have been done. Then he returned to them again and talked with them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. Say what? He fills their sacks with grain, he restores every man's money to his sack, and he gave them provisions for the journey. Thus he did for them. So they loaded their donkeys with the grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened their sack to give his donkey feed at the encampment, he saw his money, and there it was in the mouth of his sack. So he said to his brothers, my money's been restored, and there it is in my sack. Then their hearts were filled with joy, and they celebrated. We've been blessed by the Lord. Is that what happens? Their hearts failed them, and they were afraid. 
Some translations say they trembled, saying to one another, what is this that God has done to us? It's kind of this whole idea there's no atheist in a foxhole. All of a sudden, they're seeing very clearly the hand of God is at work. What is God up to? Friends, when God activates a seared conscience, we begin to gain a different perspective. God, are you trying to say something to me? Is this really happening? Because this doesn't seem like chance. This seems like a divine hand, a sovereign God moving in a sovereign way. And something begins to change inside of us when we see these things. Because God is trying to break through our hard shell and soften our hearts that have become calloused and seared. And so in the face of distress, Joseph's brothers instantly were reminded of the pain that they caused their brother over 20 years ago. Pain is a way of lingering. Even after everyone in the family grows up. Even after the, the crime has been dismissed in the courtroom. Even after the divorce is final and you've walked away without biblical justification, pain has a way of lingering. Even after things done in secret are far from anyone's awareness, even after decades of polluted water has washed beneath the bridge of memory, pain has a way of lingering. But friends, there's a purpose in that. That's part of breaking our will. This softening process that begins to activate one's seared conscience as you and I start to see things from a different perspective. And lastly here, God activates a seared conscience when we are recipients of undeserved expressions of grace. Joseph's brothers didn't deserve any grain. They didn't deserve their money back. They didn't deserve... Uh, They deserved punishment is what they deserved. They deserved imprisonment for what they'd done to their brother. Instead, they wound up with freedom, a full sack of grain, and all of their money returned to them. They deserved to be on Joseph's hit list. But Joseph didn't have such a list. Remember Potiphar's wife? You know she was still around. Joseph could have easily gone after her for falsely accusing him but we don't find that in the biblical account. Remember the cupbearer? Joseph sat in prison for two more years because of his poor memory. He could have gone and chewed him out, but we don't find that in the account either. No, Joseph doesn't have a list of grudges. Now Joseph is the second most powerful man in all the land. What an opportunity to take revenge, but he doesn't. He demonstrates grace with abundance of mercy. He fills all of their their goods and sends them even with provisions. Let me pack a lunch for you. The story is told of a friend that came over just before Christmas time. He was a little bit early. And this man was addressing envelopes. He was almost done. We have that to look forward to, right? And the good friend, he picked up a card and he says, what? You're going to send this guy a Christmas greeting after what he did to you just 18 months ago? I mean, publicly, he just tarnished you big time. And the man said, yeah, I know, but I'm going to send him one anyway because God is helping me to forget. The man didn't keep a list 
if you will. And neither did Joseph. In fact, part of the reason we know that, one of his sons, Manasseh, what did it mean? God has made me forget. Every time he called his son's name, it was a reminder to him to forget the past sting his brothers had caused. Friends, when we have been wronged, when we have been hurt to the core, when we are abused or mistreated or lied to or taken advantage of, and forgive me, but these things are nothing in light of Joseph's experience, sold as a a slave, accused of foul play, convicted, imprisoned, forgotten, yet he responds with grace. This is perhaps, I think, the most powerful means that God has to activate a seared conscience a calloused heart, to show grace when something else is entirely deserved. And you and I know it better than anybody else what's deserved. But God shows grace. And it sets us back on our heels and we say, I don't deserve that. And it's that realization that pricks a calloused heart, a seared conscience, gives us a new perspective and say, Lord, I'm guilty, I've sinned, forgive me. And he says, I forgive you, my son and my daughter. You're my child. Go sin no more. Knowing full well our sin, your sin and my sin, knowing every wrong we have committed, he acted out of grace for you and me to awaken our seared conscience, to awaken us from our complacency. Titus 2, 11 to 14 says this, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, for me, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. What makes us zealous for good works? Is it somebody in the workplace come along behind you? You're not doing it right. If you don't do this right, the next time you're out of here. Or is it grace that causes us to say, man, I don't deserve that, but let me do my best by your grace to live up to it. His grace, his mercy, the fact that he gave himself for us. And in our story, Joseph is the one at this point in time that is showing grace. As we continue this story, we'll see some other examples, powerful examples, the most powerful one still coming, of the grace with which Joseph shows his brothers, and it makes all the difference. That's how God longs to pierce our hardened hearts. I came across a story some time ago, true story, Susie was a girl that lived up in Ohio, and she had a neighbor friend. They grew up together since they were little kids. Mark was his name, but Mark had some issues as he grew older. He didn't always make the best decisions. Sometimes he'd come over to Susie's house. Mark would have all kinds of of different things happening at different times in his life, different clothing, different colors, sometimes all black, sometimes purple hair, sometimes spikes, all this kind of stuff. But for whatever reason, I think her name was Patty. Did I call her Susie? Doesn't matter. Patty liked him anyway. And so Patty continued to try and take 
him under her wing and, and build him up and encourage him and these kinds of things. But Patty's dad, especially as they grew older, didn't like this idea. Fathers, I don't want my daughter hanging around with this guy. I mean, look at him. He's, he's a mess. I don't want him influencing her. And so time and again, he would talk to Patty and Patty would say, I know, Dad, don't worry, but, but he's a nice guy. He means well. He's got a good heart. Patty, I really wish you'd stay away. Well, the time came that a, a bunch of friends of them went down to the Gatlinburg Pigeon Forge area. They made some choices that they shouldn't have. They were at a, a bar and they were drinking. But Mark decided, no, I'm, I'm going to hold back. I'm not going to continue on so I can drive us home. That's what he did. And as they were driving through that section that connects, I think, Pigeon Forge and Gatlinburg, that windy road that you have all probably been on before, late at night, he's going too fast and the music is playing loud and a corner catches up with them and they roll the car over and over and over and over and over and land in the creek, upside down. EMS is called, people respond, they actually fly her out to Knoxville to get the, the care that she needs, but Patty's in a coma at this point. And it's not looking good for her at all. And Mark's trying to get himself together, and he, he drives to the hospital. He gets there before her parents get there from Ohio, and he's just beside himself. As he's there next to her in the hospital room, holding her hand, and she's just lifeless. And his mind is racing. What have I done? What am I going to tell her dad, especially, much less her mom? This is my fault. I'm guilty of this thing. As he keeps thinking about all this, he just becomes overwhelmed. And he says, I got to get some fresh air. And so he goes out and he's walking around the hospital and he comes back up to the room and lo and behold, who should be there but Patty's parents? And he's stunned. He doesn't know what to do. Should he should go in? Should he leave? What, what should he say? And Patty's father walks up to Mark and puts his arms around you and gives him a hug and says, it's okay. I know you'd never do anything to hurt my daughter. I forgive you. And Patty didn't make it. But that act of grace forever changed Mark. It wasn't a lecture. It wasn't you should have done, why didn't you? But it was grace. And it pricked Mark's heart to the core. And it forever changed him. And what good news we have that we have a God in heaven that doesn't want to come down and choke us and wring our necks and say, what's the matter with you? But he shows us grace to prick our hearts and our consciences and say, I love you. The devil keeps repeating over and over and over, you're a terrible person that I'll never accept you because what you did to your brother or what you did in this situation or what affair you had or whatever it is. And you say, I can never set foot in church again. And God says, come, you're my son, you're my daughter. I love you. And when we experience that kind of grace, it transforms us. It activates that seared conscience. And we say, Lord, forgive me. I'm guilty. I've sinned. And we fall on our knees before him. And he says, get up, my son, my daughter. I forgive you. It's okay. Let's walk on together. What a beautiful God that we serve. Most powerful means to awaken a seared conscience. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful that this story includes details not just about Joseph, but about his brothers. You're not concerned with just the insiders. You're concerned with outsiders. You're concerned with those that perhaps feel that they're on the fringes, that have done some things that they're not feeling good about. 
And Lord, the reality is all of us fall into that camp. Without you, all of us are outsiders. And so, Lord, our prayer this afternoon is, Lord, awaken within me areas in my life where my conscience has been seared. Create a tenderness in my heart for your Holy Spirit that I might ever be attuned to his voice. Lord, forgive me of my sin, my guilt, my denial, and change me by your grace. Is my prayer in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.